Teresa and visit her parents down in Louisiana. And so they asked if I would uh, fill in, and I'm more than honored to do that and uh, have the opportunity to look into God's Word. Dennis has been going through a series in the book of Colossians, uh, Colossians that em- emphasizes the preeminence of Christ, that Christ should have first place in everything. And last week he had that great illustration with the rope. Remember that? He had the, the long rope and you had this little tiny piece on the rope that represented our lives. It was a great illustration, but it was wrong in two respects. One, the rope wasn't long enough. Uh, you know, that he realized we have eternity past that goes a gazillion times a gazillion, you know, t- into eternity that way. We have this little blip on the line that's our lives. And then we have eternity going that way. And so in that, that illustration, it reminds us really what the psalmist said, who is man? that you would even take note of him. Uh, our lives are really so small in, com- in the scheme of eternity. And so I'm, I'm going to look at the same thing today, just from a slightly different perspective. How do we develop a heavenly mindedness? How do we begin to think heavenly thoughts? How do we, we take our lives and, and put them into a place where God can use us and, and get us out of the world system? So I'm going to use First uh, John chapter 2. And if you turn in your Bibles there, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 17 as our scripture this morning. So hear now the word of God. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word. We're so grateful you've given us your Holy Spirit, that you have not left us on our own, but you have shown us what you desire us to do and to be. And so I pray that as we look at this passage today, that your spirit would open our eyes, open our hearts, that we would see and understand and believe, and even more importantly, apply it into our lives. 
And so I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Few problems have probably caused more difficulty for Christians than worldliness. Uh, Throughout the centuries, worldliness has been the thing that trips us up more often than not. And as you look through the centuries, the church has always tried to deal with worldliness in different ways. Uh, Some have been the legalistic way. Uh, We're just going to keep you away from the the drinking, smoking, dancing, playing cards, and going to movies. Uh, If you can stay away from that, then you're not a worldly person. Other times, uh, back in the the 4th century, there was a guy uh, by the name, I lost his, his name here, Um, Simon, who lived on the top of a 60-foot pole on a 36-foot platform. And that was his way of staying away from the world and not being a worldly person. Now, people would come and they would look at the unworldly man up there on that platform. I'm not sure that's what John has in mind in this passage. Again, Paul writes in Colossians 2, These are matters which have to be sure. The appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And so the rule approach to the problem of worldliness doesn't work. So Paul, or Paul John's going to show us in this passage what it is uh, that's going to keep us from being worldly people. In 1 John, there, there's three tests that John uses throughout the book to help us know whether or not we are Christians, to know for sure whether or not we have come into a right relationship with God. And the first test is the moral test. Uh, It's saying, are you obeying the words of God? Are you obeying the commands of God? Are you walking according to the way he wants you to walk? That's the moral test. And then secondly, there's a relational or social test. How are you doing at loving one another? And all through the book, in fact, the passage I read today, that's part of it. Do you love one another? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? That's a sign of whether or not you truly know God. And then the third test is the doctrinal test. Who is Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Christ is the Son of God? And John says, if you believe that, then you have eternal life. If you don't believe that, you do not have life. So those three tests are what John has been going through in his book. And when we get to chapter 2, he begins to show us what it means to to be uh, in both. We're going to see the doctrine, excuse me, they're going to see the relational test, and we're going to see the moral test mentioned here as proof whether or not we know God. In fact, in verse 3, by this we know we have come to know him. And in verse 5, by this we know that we are in him. So John wants us to know that we are truly Christian. But when it comes to worldliness, it causes us to doubt ourselves. Am I really a believer if I'm doing those kinds of things? Am I really a believer if I'm stumbling in that way? Am I really a believer if I continue to commit these acts of sin? And John wants to give us an assurance in the midst of that that we can, in fact, be Christian, but he wants to show us the antidote to the worldliness in our lives. Again, John characteristically draws a very sharp line. Uh, For him, everything is black and white. And so John is going to draw a very sharp line in this as well. He's going to say, you can either love the world or you can love God, but you can't love both. Don't try to think that you can have a foot in both worlds because you can't. Jesus reminded us you can't serve two masters. You either love the one and hate the other, but you have to choose which you're going to serve. And so John's going to say the same thing here. You cannot love God and you cannot love the world. It's an impossibility. So as we look at our lives and we use these tests to begin to examine ourselves, we're going to ask the question, so who do I love? Where is my allegiance? And it's especially important as we come to the table this morning. 
you know, we're going to remind us that let each man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Well, part of that examination is what John is talking about here. How worldly am I? How tied into the world system am I? How much sin am I committing uh, in, in the name of the world system instead of following after God and what he wants? If anyone habitually loves the world, John says, the love of the Father is not in him. So we're going to say some hard things today. Uh, and I hope in, in the midst of that, we're going to come to verse 17, which is the grace of God, hallelujah, that the world is passing away. Uh, and we have a hope for the future, but in the midst of it, let's, let's look at that little blip on the line of eternity and understand where we are in relationship to God. So what is the world? Uh, John uses the word world several different ways in his writings. One is to describe the, uh, the stuff of creation. It's the dirt and it's the, it's the birds and the trees and all the stuff of creation. So that part of the world, it's the created order. Another way he uses it sometimes is in, in uh, referring to mankind in general. God so loved the world, not each individual person, but he loved mankind in general that he sent his only begotten son. But John, in this case, also uses the word to refer to the evil organized system under Satan. And it operates through unbelieving people who are God's enemies. So in John, 1 John 2, he's using the word world in the sense of a system that is in, under the control and power of Satan to try to accomplish his purposes. So the word in, in this sense of world system uh, is going to help us understand when he talks about it being in the world. He's talking about a system that envelops the world. <coughs> now all you have to do is turn on your TV or go to a movie or listen to the radio or open a, a, a book or a magazine and you're going to see the world system that is there. So we are inundated constantly bombarded constantly by the world system. So there's nobody who can't say, I, I don't know what you're talking about, uh, because we actually do when we look at it. So the world system, as John describes it here, first of all, it's headed by Satan. Uh, he is the head of the world system. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, Paul says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Uh, so it's headed by Satan. Secondly, it also has its own philosophy. Uh, the world system operates in a way that, that exalts man and his wisdom against God and his wisdom. There's a philosophy that underlies the whole thing. In, in Ephesians 2, verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So there's this philosophy that the world has. And again, all we have to do is look around us and we can see how that begins to play out. The third part about the world system, it includes all humanity outside of Christ. Now again, in John's view and in the biblical view, there's only two ways. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're in the kingdom of Satan. You're either following God or you're following Satan. You're either in the light or you're in the dark. And so this world system includes all humanity that is outside of Christ. Uh, it's not just those who are, are think they're morally neutral somehow. No, you're either in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. In 1 John 5, later on in this book, he says, We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control and power of the evil one. So that's, that's the, the, the humanity outside of Christ. And I've already mentioned the fourth aspect of this world system. It's anti-Christ and anti-Bible. Back in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you because it hated me first. 
uh, th this world system hates Christ. It hates everything he stands for. It hates everything he's trying to accomplish in the world. So the world here is the ordered system of which Satan is the head. His fallen angels and demons are his emissaries, and the unsaved of the human race are his subjects. Together with those purposes, pursuits, pleasures, practices, and places where God is not wanted. Much in this world system is religious, cultured, refined, and intellectual, but it is anti-God and anti-Christ. He writes, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus spoke of the world hating him. It operates on the basis of ungodly thoughts, attitudes, motives, values, and goals, and it does not seek to promote God's glory or to submit to his sovereign authority. It is in this sense that we must not love the world. So as we get into this passage, keep that in mind. That's an important definition. This is a world system. This is a philosophy. This is a way of approaching life. This is a way of doing things that basically is anti-God, anti-Christ, and anti-Bible. Now, some, sometimes it's overt and it's very obvious, and sometimes it's covert and not as easy to recognize. But if it's not of God, it is of Satan. If it's not of his kingdom, it's of the kingdom of Satan. And so as we go through this passage, uh, starting there in, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, he's writing so that they would, would understand that they had been forgiven. Again, up in chapter 1, we have, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. He says, children, I'm writing these things because I don't want you to sin. Now, that's a, a nice thought, but it's, it's not possible in this life that we will be perfect. And so he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, the advocate, the defense attorney, the one who stands before God in our place and pleads our case before the Father. He says, I paid for that. My blood covered that. They're, they're my, uh, my brothers and sisters. And he says, so he is providing propitiation, verse 2. Uh, he has appeased the wrath of God. He's paid the penalty for the sin before God uh, as the sacrifice for our sins. Uh, he says, by this we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So he says, because of who we are, because of what God has done for us, because of the blood of Christ, because of the forgiveness we now have, here's some things we need to do. It, it, one great thing to do as you go through your Bible studies that Dennis gives you is always look for the indicatives and the imperatives. An indicative is a statement of fact. Uh, so in this case, you, you, uh, you know, Jesus Christ is the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he's paid for our sin. He's forgiven us because of who we are. Now here's what you need to do. You need to begin to keep his commandments. So all the way through scripture, look for the indicative, a statement of fact, and then the imperative, what are we supposed to do? A good example is the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. There's the indicative. Now what? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an image. And so the Ten Commandments flow out of the indicative. John's using the same thing here. Because of what God has done, because of who you are, because of your status and standing before him, therefore, here's what we need to be doing. And so the first thing he mentions, keep his commandments. There's that moral test. Are you keeping the commandments of God? Are you doing what God has told you to do? Not to gain his favor, not to earn salvation, but because you have been saved and because you do have the favor of God resting upon you. Now keep his commandments. If you say, I've come to know him, but don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in Christ 
ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. The sermon I did a couple of weeks ago, that whole idea of walking, a consistent habitual lifestyle. So the first thing, because of who we are in Christ, we're to keep the commandments of God. We're to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. Well, we have a world system that is anti-Christ. And so we automatically see a, a conflict that if, if we're going to keep the word of God, if we're going to walk in the same way that Jesus walked, we're now in conflict with the world system. And we're gonna, we should begin to see that conflict as we live out our lives a little bit more. And then at the beginning of verse 7, he goes into the second aspect, which is the, um, the social test, if you will. He's, he begins to say, now we need to, to love one another. And if you're not loving your brother, uh, you know, you're one verse 9, the one who says he's in the light yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. So now he says the second thing, because of who we are, is we're to love one another. We're to have a, a relationship within the body of Christ with our brothers and sisters in Christ that is characterized by love. Uh, Doug Levengood's going to start a Sunday school class after Easter on the one another commands of Scripture. That's really what John's talking about. Love one another, bear one another's burdens. Uh, all those things we're supposed to do in, in loving the, 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 the brethren and loving the church that is there. So again, as we get to uh, down to verse 12, <coughs> he takes a parenthesis and he says, by the way, I know this is coming down hard. I, I, I'm assured that you do in fact have a relationship with Christ. He writes to little children. Those are those who are, are new to the faith, who are young in the faith. He says, I know you've come to know him. I know you know him as the father. And then he writes to those on the other end, the, the fathers, those who have arrived now at, at the end of their life or they're more mature because they walked with Christ longer. And he says, I convince that you know him as well because you you've known him who is from the beginning. And then the, the middle group, the, the young men, these are the ones who are living their life as Christians, fighting the battle, learning more and more about Christ, overcoming the world, overcoming the evil one. And that's where they live their life. And so he, he says, as I look at you, I understand you do know Christ. But the, we have these things that we're failing in. We have these things we're being tempted in. We have these things that we're falling into. Again, you either love God or you don't. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're not. And so he says, even though I know you have a relationship with God, here's the warning that I want you to have. And so beginning in verse 15, he has a very uh, pointed section that I want to focus on in the rest of my time. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Again, world system. Don't love this world system. Don't love the things that are in this world system. Because if anyone loves that world system, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, John means that the one who loves the world does not love God. Now listen to that. If you love the world, if you're committed to the world, if you're following the world, if the world system is the way you want to live your life, you're not a Christian. That's what John is saying. He says the one who loves this world does not love God. The one who has submitted himself to this world has not submitted himself to God. Now, I'm not talking about the, the acts of sin that all of us commit. I'm not talking about those occasional things that we do. But if your life is characterized by the world system, if your life is characterized by following after the philosophy, pleasures, and, and things that the world offers you, then John is saying you cannot have the love of God in you. He's drawing a very sharp line. Now, that's a hard thing for us to listen to because we all are, are in some ways, pursuing the things of the world. 
And things of the world aren't evil in and of themselves. We just have to be careful that we're not pursuing them as our God because the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You cannot love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength if part of that love is given to the world. You cannot love God if you love the things of the world. So John's commandment uh, is either you love the world or you love the Father. You can't straddle the line because our God is a jealous God. He's a consuming fire, and he wants all of you, not part of you, not a Sunday morning part of you. He wants all of you 24-7. That's what it means to be committed to God. So just in case we, we misunderstand, he wants to elaborate for us in verse 16. What does that look like then? If we're talking about loving the world, what is the world then? So he says, for all that is in this world, and he gives three characteristics of this world system. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That describes the world system that John is referring to. Those three things really give a good picture of what we face uh, as we go about our daily life. The lust of the flesh, that, that's really the, the desires. It's, it's an intense desire. It's a passion from within. It, it's part of that, that old you that just keeps fighting and, and wanting and wanting. And sometimes, a lot of times, it refers to a sexual sin. gives you kind of the idea, the, 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 the intensity of that desire behind it. But this is an internal desire. It, it stems from the old nature. It stems from the, the old sins. It stems from the old life. And so there's this lust of the flesh that says, I want these things, and it appeals to my senses. It appeals to my, my fleshly nature, so I want those things. Again, many natural desires are legitimate. Food is good, but food taken to an extreme is gluttony. Sex is good. Sex taken outside of the confines of marriage are what? Immorality, adultery, pornography, all the things that are mentioned there. Uh, a job is good, but a job can also become an idol. Your family is good. A family become an idol for you. So the, the things that, that drive us from the inside, the natural desires uh, that are there, God has set limits on those. But when we usurp those limits and usurp his rightful place in our lives, then we've fallen into the love or the lust of the flesh. And the second one, the lust of the eyes, it's also kind of an internal one, but this now leads more to greed and covetousness. Uh, it's what I see out there all the time, and it makes me want things. This is where advertising comes into play. If you turn on any TV show and you look at the advertisements, what are they trying to do? Well, they show that usually these very attractive people in these very exotic places selling some product that you absolutely need so you're going to look like them, right? It appeals not only to the lust of our flesh because I desire for those things, I desire that, but also the lust of the eyes. I want that. I need that. Anybody here an impulse shopper? You don't have to raise your hand. You know, it'd be better for me if I would just stay away from Amazon and eBay because inevitably I'll go there and I find something I absolutely need, right? And so click, it's now mine. That's what the lust of the eyes does. It, you see something. You see something you don't have, and sometimes you see something somebody else has, and that causes that covetousness. I want that. I want what they have. And so the, the lust of the eyes begins to appeal to us for the things of this world, I need that, I want that, I have to have that. And then finally, the boastful pride of life, where maybe the, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes is more internal. The boastful pride, or, or actually deals with the things we don't have. Uh, the boastful pride of life is what I do have. Look at how good I am. 
Look at all this stuff I have. I'm in a position of power and prestige, and people look up to me, and that's what I really need. So the world system is classified by those three characteristics. And if we're honest, we can identify those three characteristics in our lives to some extent. Yes, I, I still struggle with, with, with temptation and sin from just the, the natural desires and cravings and passions in my life. And I, I, I struggle sometimes with wanting stuff because I see it and it looks good, it looks exciting. I need to have that. And I can be a proud person. Look at me. Look at all the stuff I've accomplished, the things that I have. Now, where we cross the line is when those three things become the driving force of our lives. As Christians, we're going to deal with those, and that's why we say if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. That's what we hold on to. But if you're not confessing, if you're not repenting, if instead you're enjoying uh, pursuing the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, then go back to what John says, the love of the Father is not in you. You cannot be driven, you cannot be controlled, you cannot be submitted to the world system and love God. To obey the Father, though, is to maintain our love for him. And like I said, verse 17, uh, excuse me, let me finish up verse 16. Uh, when he says that the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Um, you probably know... you people who have, have tried to justify uh, their, their sin by saying, well, that's just you know, the way God made me, or I know God wouldn't withhold that from me, or I know he wants me to be happy. And so we begin to justify our flesh and our, our desires by saying, well, maybe it is from God. And John makes note, nope, it is not from the Father. These things are not from God. They're from the world system. Uh, don't try to get away with that. But then he says, verse 17, hallelujah, the world is passing away and also its lusts. Uh, we don't have to stay there. And again, as we think of that long rope from eternity to eternity and the little blip that we are right there on that line, the world is passing away. And at one point, we're going to enter into that eternity uh, where we, we have a relationship with God. We now have eternal life that's, that's ahead of us. Uh, and we look forward to having that as then. To obey God is to maintain your love for him. It's the opposite of loving the world. It's the opposite of submitting yourself to the, the things of the world that are there. It refers to obeying God's commands, and it, it's, it's submitting yourself to him. The one who does the will of God lives forever. Uh, again, it's not just, just looking at a generic sense of what is God's will for my life, but specifically, this is the will of God. He's revealed himself to you. These are the commandments and the statutes and the ordinances he's given us. This is how we can live a life that is pleasing to him. Everything for life and godliness is contained in this book. And so if we're not spending time in this book, but instead indulging uh, the, the, the desires of the world system, we're never going to grow. And so John, again, makes clear that the, the one who does the will of God, the one who spends time in the word, the one who is, is obedient to the commands of God, they are the ones who have proven they have a relationship with God. Do not misunderstand the verse. He's not saying if you obey, then you will live forever as, as because of your eternal life. But he's really saying because you do have eternal life, we do the will of God, which proves that we're going to live forever. If you love the world and you love the things in the world, you're going to lose them all at death. Why would you want to book a ticket on a ship that is going to sink? 
You know, they said you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. And so in this little moment of eternity, what are we doing? What are we doing with our time and our talent and our treasure? What are we doing in our relationships with one another? Are we investing in the things of our flesh and investing in things of this world? Are we investing in the things of God? In light of eternity, even if you've attained all of your worldly desires, what good are they at death? Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? John is saying the same thing. We will abide in heaven with him for eternity. That's our goal. That's our prize. That's what we look for. That's what we long for. So what's the good news in all of this? Well, John Piper, in writing on this, this passage, I thought said something good. He said, the work of Christ and the word of God empower us to gain victory and overcome the evil one. Jesus Christ, the righteous, has died in our place. The wrath of God is propitiated. Its removal is sealed. Christ is raised from the dead and intercedes as our advocate in heaven on the basis of that propitiation. The word of God, the gospel, comes to us, and by grace we receive it, and it abides in us. In this way, we abide in Christ so that he becomes our personal propitiation and advocate. That is, we experience what Christ has obtained for us. Satan accuses us of damning sin, tries to destroy us, but we, like the young men of verse 14, overcome the evil one because the word of God abides in us and we are strong. There is victory over the world. There is victory over the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. And it comes through the power of the Holy Spirit given to us because we have submitted ourselves and trusted in Christ alone for our salvation. The things of this world really aren't that important. The things of this world really don't mean that much in comparison to our walk with Christ and our love of God. And so as we, we come to the table this morning, I want us to begin thinking about that. Where am I in this, this spectrum of, of love for the world or love for God? Uh, are there things in my life that are characterized now by the lusts of the flesh, that intense desire and passion just that, that wells up within me? Or is is my, my mind or my life characterized right now by the lust of the eyes? I see things and I want them, I desire them, and I, I covet them. Are we a proud person? Are we trying to exalt ourselves and say, look at how good I am? When all of that pales to what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. A few years ago, author Tom Sine wrote, whatever commands our time, energy, and resources commands us. And if we're honest, we will admit that our lives really aren't that different from those of our secular counterparts. I suspect that one of the reasons we are so ineffective in evangelism is that we are so much like the people around us that we have very little to which we can call them. We hang around church buildings a little more. We abstain from a few things, but we simply aren't that different. We don't even do hedonism as well as the folks around us, but we keep on trying. As a result of this unfortunate accommodation, Christianity is reduced to little more than a spiritual crutch to help us through the minefields of the upwardly mobile life. God is there to help us get our promotions, our house in the suburbs, and our bills paid. Somehow God has become a co-conspirator in our agendas instead of our becoming a co-conspirator in his. Something is seriously amiss. Christianity is reduced to little more than a spiritual crutch to help us through the minefields of the upwardly mobile life. That's a world characterized by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. 
So as we come to the table, let me give you a few questions just to keep your, your mind maybe examining what we're talking about. A.W. Pink in his um, commentary on this passage says, which do you seek with more fervor, the wealth and honors of the world or the riches of grace and the approval of God? Which have the greater attraction to you, the pleasures of this world, which are only for a season, or those pleasures at God's right hand, which are for eternity? Wherein lies your confidence, in the money you have in your bank account or investments, or in the living and faithful God who has promised to supply all your needs? Which causes you deeper sorrow, a temporal loss or a break in your fellowship with God? Upon which do you get more joy, spending money for personal comforts and luxuries or spending money to further the gospel? What most dominates your mind? Thoughts and schemes after worldly advancements or resolutions and efforts to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. You see, Satan holds the world in unbelief. He holds the world captive to the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. But it's by faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as Savior, that we escape from Satan and obey God's will and overcome the world. Now, some of you may not have even made the basic choice yet. Maybe you're not sure, but you need to love God. You need to submit yourself to him. You need to come to Christ for salvation because he alone can offer that to you. Or maybe you are still struggling. I, I love the world too much. It's too hard. You're asking me to give up too many things. So examine yourself. Is it worth it? Is it worth it if a man gains the entire world and yet forfeits his life? Let's pray. Lord God, uh, this is a hard passage, and you say some hard things in it. But praise be to you that you have given us the escape. The way out is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He sent the Holy Spirit to live within us, and now he gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Father, as we come to the table this morning, would you please help us to examine our lives truly and honestly, to look for those things of the world system that are still in us that we choose and we like. Help us to repent of those things, to confess those things, and to once again rely on the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ alone. Father, we do love you. We want to love you more. Help us to escape from this world system and become even more like Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen.